In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and in London. This week, the Northern Ireland Protocol is firmly in the spotlight as London, Brussels, Dublin and Washington all square up over the UK's plans to override the protocol. As expected, the British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss announced in the House of Commons that the UK would introduce legislation in order, as she put it, to restore the balance of the Good Friday Agreement and to ensure that all parties could return to the Northern Ireland Executive. However, there's been fury in Dublin and Brussels as officials say London is putting a gun to the EU's head in order to force an entirely new protocol and duplicate the DUP and Boris Johnson's own Eurosceptic backbenchers. And the signals so far are that the EU will not budge, with senior figures in Washington like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Congressman Richie Neal both weighing in. We'll analyse how we got to this point, what the UK is asking for and what the EU is likely to give. But first let's start with today. Taoiseach Michal Martin went to Belfast to meet with business leaders and political leaders as well. Here's what he had to say on Good Morning Ulster earlier about what he regards are the shifting sands of the British negotiating position. What really worries me is this degree to which the goalposts keep on shifting, that one can never say that if we resolve this particular issue or that issue, that we actually will get a resolution of the issue once and for all. That is a big challenge for the European Union and the United Kingdom government need to engage in a substantive, serious way with the European Union to get these issues resolved because it's too serious for Northern Ireland. My main concern is, will the United Kingdom government ever be satisfied? Even though it signed off on this deal, uh, ratified it in Parliament, uh, now says they want to unravel it. Um, but there is no clear like, sort of guidance or no clear, clear landing zone that we can detect that would de- deal with the issues that the UK government have. I remember 12 months ago, medicines was a big issue. Huge advances were made on that. Uh, and then that was put to one side and other issues emerged. But yes, there is all, all, all of those legitimate issues in terms of the movement of goods uh, in my view, it can be addressed. I'm loath to get into the detail of one particular aspect of it, um, because I think it just, it, it, without question, this is a negotiation between the European Union and the United Kingdom government. It, it has to start and they have to get engaged. While also speaking today was the Democratic Unionist Party leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, who laid out his red lines on what his party wants to achieve before it will go back into the Northern Ireland executive and get the institutions up and running. Whilst the EU talk about proposals, they have a very limited mandate, and that mandate is to um, bring forward uh, ideas within the context of operating the current protocol. And that doesn't deal with many of the issues uh, that we have in respect of uh, our relationship with the rest of the United Kingdom. My understanding is that the government will bring forward uh, the legislation early uh, in June uh, in relation to the cost of living crisis and uh, the cost of energy in Northern Ireland. Um, The UK government wants to help. 
but the UK government can't help uh, the people of Northern Ireland with the reduction in VAT, for example, on energy costs because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It, uh, the protocol is driving up the cost of living in Northern Ireland. It is contributing to the problems that people are facing. That's why it's important that in parallel with addressing the cost of living crisis, we deal with this protocol because it is part of the problem. So, Tony, that's what's going on in Belfast today. A clearly frustrated Taoiseach following on from a clearly frustrated Simon Coveney who met Liz Truss, the UK Foreign Secretary, on the fringes of the Council of Europe meeting today, what should have been a happy occasion for Ireland taking over the chairmanship of the Committee of Ministers at the Council of Europe. I won't get you to go into an explanation of what that is. But the body language and the photo that was tweeted and the curt tone of the tweet and Liz Truss's reply says everything about what you want to know about Anglo-Irish relations at the moment and indeed EU-UK relations. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Colm, that, that that's... Uh picture and the and the two contrasting tweets uh, basically tell tell the story i think relations between dublin and london are pretty low as low as i can ever remember and, and between brussels and london as well because because of the way the uk has gone about this particular course of action despite the the relentless pleadings from dublin and and brussels to to hang on to 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 not go down this road to keep faith in the negotiating process and not to be essentially sticking to a narrative that has been co-designed almost with with the democratic unionist party uh, and also the fact that the uk has not really paused to take account of the fact that more MLAs were returned in the Northern Ireland Assembly elections uh, in favour of the protocol uh, than were against the protocol. So um, it, it's a pretty bleak period. And really, I, I, I have never seen such a standoff like this, even though we've had standoffs over the past five and six years about the Irish question on Brexit. This really does, um, you know, p- create a set of fundamental uh, obstacles on in the way to any kind of progress because the UK is essentially putting a gun on the table um, uh, uh, with this speech from Liz Truss uh, and the EU has said, well, we're not going to be blackmailed. I mean, in that that's the essential message coming from Brussels. Well, we, we can hear, first of all, from Liz Truss as she gave her speech to the House of Commons on Tuesday, uh, setting out what the UK intends to do and what the objective of that is. Our proposed solution would meet both our and the EU's original objectives for the protocol. It would address the frictions in east-west trade while protecting the EU single market and the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The challenge is that this solution requires a change in the protocol itself as its current drafting prevents it from being implemented. But the EU's mandate does not allow the protocol to be changed. Mm. That is why their current proposals are not able to address the fundamental concerns. In fact, it's our assessment that they would go backward from the situation we have today with the standstill. As the Prime Minister said, our shared objective has to be to find a solution that can command the broadest possible cross-community support for years to come and protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in all its dimensions. That is why I am announcing our intention to introduce legislation in the coming weeks to make changes in the protocol. 
Our preference remains the negotiated solution with the EU. And in parallel with the legislation being introduced, we remain open to further talks if we can achieve the same outcome through negotiated settlement. I've invited Vice President Sefcovic to a meeting of the Withdrawal Agreement Joint Committee in London to discuss this as soon as possible. However, to respond to the very grave and serious situation in Northern Ireland, we are clear there is a necessity to act to ensure the institutions can be restored as soon as possible. The Government is clear that proceeding with the Bill is consistent with our obligations in international law and in support of our prior obligations in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And before any changes are made, we will consult businesses and people in Northern Ireland as our proposals are put forward. I want to be clear to the House that this is not about scrapping the protocol. Our aim is to deliver on the protocol's objectives. What in the British government's mind, Tony, can we glean is, is the need for this? Because heretofore, the, in the uh, triggering Article 16 of the protocol itself was the issue, something that the protocol allows for if insurmountable difficulties come up and it offers an opportunity uh, for both sides to take countermeasures uh, as well. But the tack has changed for UK legislation to now disapply parts of or large swathes of the protocol. Why this approach for domestic legislation rather than Article 16? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Colm. And I think, you know, we, we need to take uh, quite a big stride back and, and look look at the pattern that we've had from the UK since early 2021. Remember, Michael Gove was the UK's negotiator when the protocol took effect on the 1st of January 2021. And he had negotiated a deal with Maros Shevchevich's opposite number to have these grace periods for for chilled meats and for medicines and for export health certificates that would have to cover food consignments going to Great Britain, going to Northern Ireland from Great Britain. And in the first month of the protocol, I think the UK government took a fairly sanguine view of, of how things were going, even though there were clearly difficulties. A lot of GB firms simply hadn't read the the instructions and were turning up with no paperwork or the wrong paperwork, and things were were not looking great. But but everything changed <clears throat> from the 29th of January, that that famous incident over vaccines and and the the fact that the EU had invoked uh, Article 16 themselves as a way to get around this vaccine problem, and that caused. A, an immediate change in the tone and substance of the UK's position. And ever since then, the UK has pursued a course of rhetorical hostility towards the protocol. And that reached a crescendo last autumn with a series of speeches by David Frost, who had taken over from Michael Gove, um, which essentially said, OK, it's it's not anymore about the protocol and the way it's implemented, the protocol itself has to change. And that, of course, is the basis of the UK command paper in July of last year, which set out a completely new model of how the protocol should work. Um, and of course, at the time, the EU said that this is this is a new protocol where, and we're not renegotiating it. Um, but, but this has been almost in plain sight what the UK has been going for. 
And my understanding of it is that even back in September, October, the UK was already preparing legislation that would give effect to a, a change in domestic law because because whether you were taking action by Article 16 or whether you're going to take action by having legislation that overrides the protocol, you would need to make some fundamental changes to domestic UK law because Article uh, Section 7A of the EU Withdrawal Act makes the protocol part of primary UK legislation. It's you know it can't be touched essentially because it is primary UK legislation passed by the House of Commons because the EU Withdrawal Act contains the protocol. And in order to sign the treaty with the EU, the UK had to put it into domestic legislation. So Lord Frost has been hinting that, you know, the UK would, you know, take whatever steps it had to take to to force this issue on the protocol. He said it to the British Irish Association in September last year. Make no mistake, we are determined as a country. Don't don't underestimate the centrality of this issue to British politics. We will do whatever it takes to make this happen. Um, and then in a in a hearing on the twenty fifth of October, he told the European Scrutiny Committee that uh, he didn't want to give too much away, but there may have to be changes to domestic le- legislation to give effect to the the changes that the UK wanted. Um, uh, on the on the protocol now, in the middle of this, what complicated the UK, David Frost's kind of mission was that the UK said the EU said, "Well, okay, um, we hear you. We've seen the command paper. We'll take it seriously. We are going to put together a series of proposals which will address a lot of the issues that you have raised." Well, that, we've, that... Be, we've been to, to to the Northern Ireland and we've met stakeholders and businesses. So here's what we're going to produce. Well, that's what I was going to ask you because. Uh, as you're describing this on the 25th of October with David Frost speaking, the the European Union back in October produced proposals that would mitigate the effects of the implementation of, of the protocol. But speaking today, uh, a briefing by the British Embassy organised today for journalists, I was asking about the question, well, what was, given that Mara Shevchevich had said in October when the UK laid out, or when the EU laid out some of these proposals to mitigate the effects of the protocol, as a basis for negotiation, not an end point or a series of diktats, at what point did you realise you had exhausted these possibilities? The position of the embassy here is that they looked at these issues in detail, they looked at the possibility they afforded of mitigating the effects of the protocol. They said the claim of the EU to reduce checks at the GBNI border of 50 to 80% was based on the full implementation of the protocol, but there were still problems with regard to the grace period and really what the EU is proposing wasn't going to facilitate the nature of the change that they wanted and as a result the protocol would have to be changed. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, th- I think what it boils down to is that in in, in early... 2021 the UK decided that the protocol would have to go uh, or it would have to be changed substantially uh, and, and I think it, it's always important to remember and you can see this in the writings and speeches of David Frost and of course David Frost is very very close to Boris Johnson Boris Johnson entrusted him with this whole project David Frost for saw the the whole 
embryo of the protocol, the whole nature and basis of the protocol as flawed. I mean, he he has taken many swipes at Theresa May for agreeing this idea in the first place that the way to solve the Irish land border pro- problem was to somehow align Northern Ireland with the single market. He thinks that was intellectually flawed. He thinks it was almost a betrayal by Theresa May. And essentially, he you can see, you can see in the animus that he directs at the protocol and at the EU and the Irish government that he thinks that that the clock has to be turned back. Um, and part of the command paper actually makes that point that the government of 2021 did not and had had not seen that the protocol was the answer to the Irish dilemma, uh, that there were other solutions, but that somehow in October 2019, the UK was railroaded into this by by the Surrender Act, the Ben Burt Act in the House of Commons, which forced them into a compromise. Uh, the EU took advantage of this. The EU wanted to, to reverse the referendum and so on and so forth. And that animus, actually, if you if you want a real flavour of how caustic David Frost feels about this, read the speech that he gave to the policy exchange on the 22nd of April. I mean, it, it's... it's um, He's kind of raging against the machine in the, in that speech, right? Um, uh, you know, just saying that this should never, this was a travesty, this should never have happened, and we were uh, railroaded into this. And he claimed, he complained about the European Commission keeping the delegation, the UK delegation, in the Berlaymont in Brussels until two a.m. in these negotiations on the eve of the protocol uh, being agreed in October 2019. Right. And a lot of people would say you that's know, pretty short in my experience of waiting outside trade union agreements. Yeah. Fairly standard. Yeah. Um, so, so, <clears throat> I mean, if 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 you sort of re- read the pattern that's been there, it's clear that the UK decided in the middle, at least, of 2021 that that's it, enough is enough. We're not tinkering around the edges anymore. We need a new protocol, uh, call it what you will. Um, but and, and the command paper is is the new protocol. Uh, you know, it, it completely inverts the idea of risk. It, it, it's, it describes a much more permissive regime of checks and controls. That, that you have a simple approach whereby if stuff's going to Northern Ireland and going to stay there, it gets this green lane, it's waved through. If stuff is going to the south, it gets the red lane treatment. That's for all goods, for agri-food. If there are problems, uh, specific problems of a food scare, then we then we have this enhanced biosecurity uh, dialogue. Um, you know, we, we get rid of the VAT. The VAT application in the protocol, Northern Ireland would be part of the UK's VAT regime. We'd get rid of the European Court of Justice. We'd get rid of the EU competition rules, which has this reach back effect into the UK. I mean, they, they were they were saying that this is now the only way to get the protocol to have purchase in the unionist community. But I mean, whatever way you 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 looked at it, um, it was a completely new protocol. And so when Bar- when Mara Shevchevich comes along and says, well, here's a bunch of proposals where we can try and address some of these issues, but within the framework of the protocol, you know, having gone that far, was David Frost going to sort of say, oh, OK, then, well, let's let's go, go back and do it your way. Well, the British um, position is that, you know, the, with the protocol as part of the withdrawal agreement is one thing, but the trade and cooperation agreement came subsequent to that. We've had the, uh, the pandemic and we've had a cost of living crisis and that, you know, times change and 
things have to change when times mm. change in yeah. order to meet the yeah. challenges of the new era in which we live. Yeah, and that 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 was reflected in Liz Truss's speech as well. So all all of these speaking points have been carefully fine tuned by British officials and, and diplomats and Liz Truss and anyone who's sent out to speak on behalf of the British government. Michael Ellis MP did it last week in Brussels at the EU UK Parliamentary Partnership Assembly. But, I mean, I, but just talking to uh, diplomats in Brussels, they say like the COVID pandemic has nothing to do with the protocol. The war in Ukraine has nothing to do with the protocol. The cost of living has nothing to do with the protocol. I mean, people in Brussels are, you know, f- find that kind of tact just bizarre and and also completely disingenuous. And it's kind of like the view is that I'm sorry, but the UK is trying it on here. I mean, this that we, we've had all these ideas for five years from Theresa May and for Boris Johnson about a dual regulatory scheme whereby traders in the in GB could decide are they going to follow uh, UK standards or EU standards and, and act accordingly. Um, you know, this idea that companies themselves would police this operation. Uh, I mean, all these ideas were, were were tried back in the in the day with Theresa May and, and the EU said, no, that's not going to work. Uh, and, and eventually Boris Johnson signed up to a protocol, which basically means, according to the EU and according to people I speak to here in Brussels, the protocol basically means that Northern Ireland is in the EU's regulatory and customs space, okay, and and yeah, and and that's the kind of that that's the deal that was done. And there's no use the UK coming along a couple of years later and saying, well, we still don't like it, so we want to change it. And if you don't change it according to our recipe, then we're just going to bring in legislation to to force that change. So you can see how this is going down extremely badly uh, in in Brussels, but nonetheless. They are saying, look, we, we understand the difficulties, we understand the resentments and anguish of, of businesses and the unionist community. And within the October proposals, there is potential to significantly reduce uh, the checks and controls. And, you know, the, the argument here is now the UK will obviously dispute this, but the argument on the on the EU side is that that, that because this was an open-ended discussion, it was not take it or leave it, then... That there was an organic process that had to be undergone, uh, whereby it's about confidence building. The UK shows willing on completing uh, border control posts. It shows willing on giving us access to databases. And then, you know, once once you can establish, you know, the factual basis of the risk through through the lived experience, through through databases, then you can say, right, well, we we can lower checks and controls in this field we can be much more flexible here um, and and it's a sort of an ongoing process um, but the complaint from Brussels is that the UK probably because David Frost and co had made up their mind last summer that it's got to be the command paper or nothing that they simply didn't engage on the, in this and, and that that's that potential has has been on untapped and unexplored and do you see any appetite uh, amongst the diplomats and officials you've been speaking to to in any way, enable Mara Shevchevich to uh, have a, a broader negotiating mandate in order, even in some limited sphere, to change aspects of the protocol that might, for once and for all, just get this whole issue off the agenda so that European diplomatic bandwidth can be better applied to something else that they consider more important, mm. like the energy crisis, like the climate uh, agenda that they want to advance, or indeed the 
necessary shuttle diplomacy that's going to have to happen on a, on a wide range of issues to do with the war in Ukraine and trying to make sure that European unity is preserved on that? Um, I mean, the simple answer is no. There, there, there is there is simply no way that that national capitals are going to change the mandate uh, that that Mara Shevchevich has. It's 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 as simple as that. Um, I mean, he he addressed EU ambassadors on Wednesday. Um, one one envoy said. Um, First of all, you don't need a new mandate, and secondly, if you ask for one, we wouldn't give it to you. Uh, and that's 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 absolutely the message right. from from Paris and Berlin. Uh, I mean, one diplomat I spoke to said, "A new mandate mandate for Maroshevich dead on arrival. It's just not going to happen." And, and is and there again, nothing even what, coming what, from, say, for for example, you know, where, states where the UK has worked closely with them, say, in Eastern Europe over the the Ukraine mm. issue, where they, you know, the UK was perhaps more ad idem with the likes of Poland and the Baltic states in terms of providing military support for Ukraine. Has that opened up any gaps or given the UK a better hearing on the Brexit front when it comes to this issue? Is there any evidence of that? No, there's there's no evidence. Um, certainly at the, at the meeting of um, EU ambassadors on Wednesday when they spoke to Maro Shevchevich, there were no dissenting voices whatsoever. Uh, from the Poles or the Balts. And, and certainly this is something that David Frost raised in his policy exchange speech. He, he was hoping that, that the Balts, Baltic countries and Poland, because of the UK's enthusiasm in supporting Ukraine and supporting Poland and the military support. But, I mean, ultimately, why would those countries spend a large amount of political capital at EU level to go entirely against the grain of the past six years uh, by suddenly siding with the UK and and trying to get a, a somehow change the mandate of of Mara Shevchevich. I mean that the like there there is I mean and this this is just completely lost in Westminster and in in unionism in Northern Ireland. There is a huge belief in Brussels and in member states that the proposals in October were a big step forward by the EU. The EU um, changed its legislation to make sure medicines can flow to uh, Northern Ireland from from GB, and that that was that was seen as a big deal. And you know you, you had to have a proposal from the European Commission. It had to be agreed by all member states. It had to be go. It had to go through parliamentary committees in the European Parliament and when it was adopted by the European Parliament it was a unanimous vote every single MEP supported it because they thought it was the right thing to do and that is extremely rare in any vote in the European Parliament and and they they thought okay look we understand the medicines issue is vital for people in Northern Ireland and, and we have changed our legislation to make sure that can happen and the feeling is that they did not get a word of thanks from uh, the UK about this. And right. in, in, in his Belfast Telegraph article on Monday, Boris Johnson was still raising the question of, of medicines, saying it was it was outrageous that, that Northern Ireland couldn't get medicines uh, from, from GB. And the, the, the template that was laid by medicines, and as you say, you know, changes to the European Union customs code being legislated for... Uh, that this might provide a way forward in other aspects of the protocol. There is preparation being made, or at least a willingness to put into legal language what exactly the application of that template might look like. In in other words, to put it in legislative language Mm. uh, as a sign of good faith. How far advanced is that, or is that being held up by 
what you mentioned there. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so in, in the discussions that that we've had since October uh, on customs, now one of the four papers that the EU presented was on customs, and they they also agree that that there could be a, they don't call it a green lane, they call it an express lane, whereby goods that are clearly not at risk of crossing the border uh, could could be fast tracked to end consumers and end retail outlets and and they do the EU does now make a distinction between you know what's clearly staying in, in the north and what's clearly going south but but the, the the sort of philosophical approach that the EU makes in this is that that you you only arrive at that risk assumption once you've done the analysis and you only do the analysis once you've done a degree of checking and you you can see the data clearly and what they're saying is the UK has has still yet to provide all of the real time data on what's coming in and what's the and barrier so to that well the UK says that the, the barrier is partly legal that that the 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 UK HMRC the customs data bases are um you know it, it it's a it's it's a holistic set of of data of, of stuff coming in and coming out of GB and you'd have to disentangle stuff that's going straight to Northern Ireland and there are legal problems and technical problems. You know, I, I think this is, this is eight, a diplomat said to me yesterday that this is 18 months behind schedule and, and how, how can we how can we make a risk assessment if we can't see the data and apparently it's at one point uh, EU officials who are working in Northern Ireland in the ports where where they, they weren't given the data at all and then they were given printouts of data. I did hear Maris Shevchevich talking about static data, all right, which yeah, which, which would yeah. seem to refer they, to that. And they were saying like if you're if you're getting a printout of a spreadsheet, you can't do a, you can't run a risk analysis on a printout. Now I, I'm told that that things ha, have got better and there was an exchange of letters between Maris Shevchevich and Liz Truss about this uh, at the end of February. Um, but but the, like the the EU position is you know to, for us to you know swing over to the UK philosophically a look at risk we, we you know we need confidence building measures we need to make sure that the UK is um, sticking to its part of the bargain you know building these border control posts giving us the data um, and and certainly um, you know admit, officials admit and this is important to say officials do admit here that. With, with a year of the protocol or 18 months of the protocol uh, providing people with lived experience, they can see that the risks of the single market is is not as big as it was when the thing was constructed. Uh, they absolutely concede that. And they say that that is what is uh, informing their discussions through these October proposals. And in order to, to reduce the numbers of uh, formalities when it comes to customs, uh, the numbers of data lines that go on to a customs declaration, because the Union Customs Code is a uniform piece of legislation that covers all EU member states and it has to be applied coherently, then you will have to change EU law again to make this work. And this has been, member states have been told about this from last October and are aware of it. And, and that's why Mara Shevchevich, he was asked about this by Hilary Benn at the uh, parliamentary assembly meeting last week he said yes of course we can change our laws uh, not not just on medicines but on customs and and this is this is what they're doing but 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 they're not just going to do that um in a completely sort of acquiescent way they they need to know that there's a sort of a a partner on the other side of the dance floor who is doing their their bit and 
The problem with this new move by the UK is that, is that they seem to be walking away completely from the October proposals and, and putting a gun on the table. So how, how do you revive those kind of discussions that could deliver a, a compromise that both sides might live with? Well, what kind of discussions are going on? What is the nature of those discussions? The protocol as it's currently established or as it's currently constructed, according to the UK, is not fit for purpose and legislation will be needed to disapply parts of it. Is there a basis for continuing discussions at, at a high level where some level of agreement can be achieved? Well, that's certainly a question that, that is being asked uh, around here in Brussels. Um, I mean, the, 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 the technical talks that were ongoing since last October kind of petered out um, in February. I think both sides agreed that they should be, they should not be in, in negotiation and, and throwing out ideas and solutions while the Northern Ireland Assembly elections were ongoing. The EU, I'm told, wanted to have low-level technical talks ongoing, but they, they didn't get a reply from London on this. And so that that's where things have stood. Now, Liz Truss, before she made her speech on Tuesday, apparently texted Maros Shevchevich to say, let's have a joint committee meeting Uh, and she made that offer again in her speech to the House of Commons. Now a joint committee as we've talked about many times before a joint committee meeting is a is a kind of a a, you know you have peaks and troughs in the negotiations since the joint committee was was formed after the withdrawal agreement and it's supposed to signify that a lot of technical work has been done and you, you need to have this uh, kind of arc up to a higher political uh, level to to give that technical work a an endorsement at at high political levels. So right that's to, what to a joint agree how it is. should be implemented, is it? Yeah, how the exactly. Should be implemented yeah, so so a, a joint committee meeting is is a kind of a sacred moment in in, in the negotiating process, uh, and and it takes you know weeks of detailed discussion between both sides at technical level and official level before it can be convened. Now, Liz Truss has said, out of the blue, let's have a joint committee meeting and start talking about our plans to legislate to override the protocol. So, you know, that's people are here scratching their heads going, well, how is this the normal joint committee meeting if it's just about you telling us that the, the protocol has to be replaced? Essentially, that's that's what it is. Um, so there's no, there's no clarity yet as to when this joint committee meeting is going to happen what kind of agenda they can agree to uh, before it happens. But certainly British officials have said to me that there's no point in having a joint committee meeting if it's not about the command paper, if it's if, if it's only about the October proposals, because in, in the UK's eyes officially, the, the EU's proposals of last October are no longer kind of valid because they don't go far enough right. uh, and, they, and they don't answer the questions that the UK say have to be answered. Right. And then uh, I suppose another source of, of pressure in, in all of this, we've, we've talked so far about how the dynamics work. We have, you know, the Democratic Unionist Party is not entering into the institutions in Northern Ireland. Uh, the British government says it wants them to get the executive up and running. But at the same time, the DUP is saying, well, let's let's see the colour of your money uh, with regard to this legislation that will display parts of the protocol. And when we see that, we will re-enter. So on the one hand, the British government is encouraging them to re-enter. On the other hand, they're saying they understand why the DUP is staying out and they need to be incentivised to go in by changes happening on the part of the EU. But in the background to all of that, 
there is the the Americans. I, I, I realise I have asked a lengthy question. I hear the door opening. Have you fled mid-question? Uh, not at all. I wanted to interrupt the, uh, your, your grad. Our, our podcast. So the Americans, we had Nancy Pelosi talking about the need to protect the protocol and more broadly the Good Friday Agreement. And we have Richard Neal with... Uh, a group of people from the Ways and Means Committee flying into Brussels going on to uh, London this afternoon as we record this on Friday and then onwards to Belfast and Dublin as well uh, in, the, in the coming days. What effect is that happening? And I suppose the other question is what back channels exist from Brussels to the US to give a European perspective apart from the obvious Irish-American channels that are in existence there going back to the Good Friday Agreement? Well, the, the Biden administration has always made it clear that they they are extremely wary about what Boris Johnson, what his intentions are with the protocol. I mean, we had this with the internal market bill in in 2020. We had it with the threat to trigger Article 16 in 2021. And, you know, the, uh, I think because the Biden administration is so instinctively tuned in to the Irish position and the Irish position is kind of primus inter pares in the in the European Union because this is seen as protecting Ireland as an as an EU member state um, then you know there is a kind of a general harmony between between Brussels and Dublin and Washington on this um, now obviously we talked last week about Connor Burns going to Washington to try and work the the channels there try to convince the administration and congress of the uk's arguments in, in parallel uh, like, to david frost going to the heritage foundation slagging off the administration yeah exactly exactly um so you know i, th- I think the initial sort of statement from the white house was quite careful in that it said both sides should get back into negotiation but what they mean by that on the US side, I presume, is that the negotiations which were ongoing, which bring us back again to the October proposals from, from the from the European Union. Um, so, I, I, I mean, to me, the UK is taking a calculated risk here. They, I think they believe that uh, it is worth testing this to destruction, this uh, confrontational policy. They have decided from sometime last year that the protocol has to be replaced. They now have uh, integrated that idea into the dynamics of the Northern Ireland Assembly elections and, and unionism. And they have now laid down the gauntlet to the EU by saying we need the protocol to be replaced and we will bring in legislation to force that to happen. And the DUP will not go into government until that legislation appears and is enacted, so, um, so, so, they're they're doing all of that in the full knowledge that this is against what the Biden administration wants, and they they obviously feel that it is a, a risk worth taking that they can weather whatever disapproval they get from Washington, uh, and then, then achieve their goals. Now, like what, you know, it's another question as to what they can achieve by doing this, because it's clear that the EU is going to take action. If they bring this legislation forward, if they produce a bill, uh, the EU will will have a graduated response. And if this bill becomes law, then the EU will. I mean, that that's what. Is well, by all means, at our a, disposal, I think button. all oh, measures only, yeah, necessary. Yeah, I think I yeah, can't remember yeah. the exact phrase Mara Shevchevich used yeah. in his statement during the week, but it was pretty yeah. much 
you know, we we will deploy the full arsenal at our, at our disposal. Uh, obviously, in, in diplomatic and trade terms, if this legislation is passed and the protocol is moved against. Yeah, I mean, like all of this work was done by the European Commission in September, October 2020, when the Internal Market Bill was was published. Uh, last year, the UK introduced three unilateral measures, one on export health certificates, one on pets, uh, and one on parcels. Uh, and those were seen as um, worthy of an infringement procedure by the European Commission. The, the Commission, you'll remember Ursula von der Leyen marched up to the TV cameras and said, we're taking the UK, uh, we're, we're, we're taking legal action against the UK because this is unilateral, it's not a joint decision. Um, and, and so they, the, you know, member states, you know, and again, this is not something that is understood in London uh, or in Belfast. Member states are across this. They are uh, meeting on a weekly basis. There's a working party meeting uh, who of, of diplomats from each member state who do this stuff every week on relations with the UK. And they have said repeatedly to the Commission, you have to prepare for all eventualities. And this is not bureaucrats in the Commission doing this. This is member states. Uh, and they're saying this and they... Um, they have urged the Commission to be ready for uh, for whatever. Now, the, the, the is, that a, is, action, that a, you, is that a diplomatic promotion or demotion to end up on that committee? <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it depends who you ask, but um, I, I certainly know a few people who um, are on maternity leave or have had con- uh, one Brexit councillor has concussion at the moment and is has not been replaced. Right, from, <laughs> so, from banging their head off off, off a brick bang, wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it, it does. I mean, that that's another thing in in that you know, the, like member states do have a lot more pressing issues on their plates, and there are fewer and fewer officials and diplomats who who are spending an awful lot of time on this issue because they felt this was all done before. Um, but I mean, to get back to the point, the, the Commission has. Uh, prepared detailed responses a graduate response from reviving the legal action all the way to you know targeted sanctions this this idea of the you know the Harley Davidson approach um, when the Trump administration did something uh, against EU steel measures they you know they targeted sensitive issues in the US economy that would target particular congressmen or women um, and then they could do the same in this. You know, you, you could have the French government could decide to take a tough attitude to uh, to checks and controls on goods coming in from from Dover. Um, so so there, there's a there's a repertoire of things the EU could take if the UK goes all the way and, and makes this bill uh, UK legislation, which would then allow ministers to completely overwrite um, the protocol. We'll know what will happen within that uh, on that front within a number of weeks when it's when it's laid out in detail in June, as Geoffrey Donaldson seems to have been briefed that 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 it'll happen, and as indeed UK official sources confirm, it'll happen within weeks as well. I think Liz Truss is on the record as saying that as well. I think that's probably a point where we could conclude it for this week. I do have one Brexit anecdote to leave us with this week in that Brexit is, is, is an adjective according to a teenage source close to my family. It's, it is used in teenage parlance with regard to football that a particularly robust style of football that might have been more popular in bygone decades of the 70s and 80s is, it is, is Brexit football. 
and, and this is not limited to, to, to this either. in other words a two-footed challenge from behind yeah. on a member of the opposing team is the most Brexit thing I have done all season or yeah. somebody who boots it up the pitch to the lo- with the long ball approach is the most Brexit player on our team Yeah well clearly what the UK government is doing is they want the VAR out to, to, to go back and look at if the protocol was offside or was somebody was manhandled in the box well, it is a two-island issue because uh, Nick Royal, a journalist, sports journalist in the UK, informs me when I put this out on social media that he had attended a game of Runcorn United where somebody shouted from the crowd, what's with all the Brexit football when the fullback kept booting it up to the big man up front? So on that, the islands are united. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.